You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When you cross cultures and times, you inevitably come across different values in different cultures. There is often a clash of cultural values that we experience when we, when we go across lines of difference into other people's cultural worlds. But one value that seems to transcend culture and time, something honored around the globe and through history, is a value for sacrifice. People across cultures and through history have found sacrifice to be something honorable, to be something that is important and noteworthy. Whether it is uh, the novels that we read that contain stories of sacrifice, or the movies that we watch, whether it's our honor for parents or caregivers who make sacrifices for their children, we value sacrifice. We're moved by stories of sacrifice. There is something deep within humanity that recognizes the beauty and the power and, yes, even the necessity of sacrifice. And in our text for today, we have an opportunity to explore this theme of sacrifice, a theme that is central to the Bible itself. And it's a difficult text for us 21st century readers. There are many seeming moral conundrums in this text. But what I want to say this morning is that this text, when rightly understood, is an absolutely stunning picture of who God is. And it's an absolutely stunning picture of the nature of God's salvation. It's a stunning picture. Like if you're considering what it might mean to trust God, to follow God, to, to be a disciple of Jesus, this kind of text gives you a sense of the kind of God you're linking up with. It reveals the center of his heart. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to approach this text through two points as we see a father's love and a son's redemption. These are our two points for this morning that we're going to use to organize this text. We're going to see a father's love and a son's redemption. So let's look at our first point where we see a father's love. If you look at the beginning of our text that we have chosen for this morning, we get to, finally, we get to the fulfillment of the promise. By this time, check it, um, the, the, there has been a passage of 25 years since God initially made the promise. And now the promise has finally been fulfilled. Just to put that in context, this would be like the Lord making a promise to me when the first episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air came out. It's a long time ago. That's a lot of years to pass. And the longing's only built over time. But finally, here is the fulfillment. You cannot imagine the joy that Abraham and Sarah were experiencing. And when we leap to chapter 22, it tells us that after these things, after the fulfillment that had 
been waiting for 25 years, after a lifetime of barrenness, God's promise of a son is delivered. Abraham and Sarah were holding that precious baby boy in their arms. The Lord was faithful to his promises, and their joy was through the roof. You can't imagine how much joy this child brought into their lives, and it's even reflected in his name, Isaac. His name literally comes from the word for laughter or joy. So every, not only were they reminded every day at his presence, but every day they called his name, they were reminded of the joy that this promised child had introduced into their lives. Now, we all love our children, but there's something about having a child on the other side of extreme difficulty that makes that child all the more precious, all the more special to parents who have longed to have them. And so Abraham and Sarah must have doted on Isaac with incredible delight. He was their miracle baby. And this is what makes the command of God all the more stunning. This is what makes the command of God all the more staggering. It almost feels as though God brings them to the highest height of joy just to tear them down to the lowest depths of despair. At the very beginning of Abraham's story, God calls Abraham to take his past and put it on the altar. But in this chapter, God calls Abraham to take his future and to put it on the altar. His future was bound up in this son, his future security, his future hope, his future lineage is now being called back from God. And it's underscored for us by the narrator in verse 2, if you take a look. The Lord says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Do you see the emphasis there? The narrator is trying to get us, the reader, to really pick up on just how deep, just how painful, just how heart-wrenching this loss would be, just how steep the demand from God is for Isaac, your special son, the one you love, I want him. Can you imagine what must have been going through Abraham and Sarah's minds? They were shell-shocked. Utterly shell-shocked. The difficulty of God's command was beyond staggering. So great was Abraham's love for his special son that it must have felt like his heart was imploding. Like his world was about to completely fall apart, there would be no loss equal to this loss. There could be no more costly sacrifice asked of Isaac, asked of Abraham. And the text emphasizes the enormity of the sacrifice by repeating the word son ten times in the narrative. The word son is repeated 10 times in the narrative, and the narrator is reminding you of what is happening here. Wake up. Look at what the Lord is asking of Abraham. 
if it were possible, Abraham would have sacrificed 10,000 bulls and rams to satisfy God's command. But God required the son, Isaac. And we read this text as modern readers, and we're like, what are you doing, God? How could you do this, God? How could you be so cruel? And if you're not a Christian in here this morning, you may very well be thinking, see, this is why I don't do religion. What kind of God does this? In verse 3, if you understand how the narrator is telling the story, and if you remember the original audience, Israel, the message of this text begins to open up. Okay, what I want to tell you is that the way in which you begin to work through this text is you have to ask the question, what did this text mean to the original audience? That is the key to navigating this terrain, to understanding the moral quandary that's going on here. Because here's what's interesting. There's no report of Abraham haggling with God. If you, if you go back to chapter 18 of Genesis and you, re, and you read through that narrative when God visits Abraham and Abraham shows hospitality, but then he lets Abraham know he's about to go and, and judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know what Abraham does? He pleads. He shows himself to be a priestly character in that narrative on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Do we find Abraham pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's not pleading for his own son right here? Here's why. There is something going on that the original audience would have seen very clearly that Abraham was thinking about, but we are not aware of most of the time. So let's, let's dig into this. Because there's no report of anger or frustration on Abraham's part, no special pleading. His simple response is faithful obedience. What is going on here? Here's what's happening. If you remember the original audience, Israel, they're the original audience, and they are in between the Exodus and the Promised Land. And if you go fast forward to Exodus chapters 12 through 13, you and I are told that when God judged Egypt, he brought judgment on the firstborn sons of Egypt, the firstborn of Egypt. Why? Because Israel was the firstborn of the Lord. And the Lord was giving Pharaoh a taste of what he had done to God. It was a just judgment from God. And God was coming for all the firstborns. And not only that, the Lord let Israel know that their firstborn children belonged to him, but they could redeem their firstborn children. They could buy back their firstborn children through the sacrifice of a lamb, and that's what happens at Passover. There is a passing over of the firstborn in that text. So now, what you have to understand, as they hear the Lord's word to Abraham in Genesis 22, they would have thought, of course, the firstborn belongs to the Lord. This is the way it is for us too. Our firstborn belongs to the Lord and so did Abraham's firstborn. I wish, I wish I could have been there 
to hear the conversation between Abraham and Isaac on their journey. Three days. Tension. Three days of this pressure mounting. And we're not told what they talked about as they journeyed up the mountain. But surely Abraham was taking these last moments to affirm his love for his son. Maybe he recounted everything that he and his wife Sarah had gone through in their waiting for his arrival. Maybe he communicated to Isaac the joy that he felt at his birth. Because by this time, Isaac is probably in his mid-teens to late teens. He's, he's a little older. Maybe Abraham told Isaac how proud he was, soaking up the final moments that he would have with his boy. We're only left to imagine. But on the third day, verse 4 tells us, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. For three days, Abraham journeyed. And he must have been praying and thinking the whole way, God, if there's any other way to satisfy your demands, please, I'll do it. Anything but this, Lord, please, not my son. God, what else can I give you? I'll give anything. I'll pay any price. But please, don't let it be this. The text makes no mention of a single word from the Lord. The heavens are silent. It's a long, drawn-out agony for Father Abraham. And the last stage of the journey is the hardest and the loneliest. Because Abraham and Isaac must make the final climb to the mountaintop alone. You see, Abraham does not want to risk the possibility that his servants will judge him to be a deranged old man and stop him from obedience to the Lord. But on this final ascent, a powerful picture is given to us. Isaac bearing the wood for the sacrifice that would consume him. And up to this point, that had been carried by a donkey. But before they make the final climb, Abraham says to his servants, I want you to notice this. Look at what Abraham says to his servants. He says, wait here. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I and the boy will go and come again to you. God called Abraham to put his son on the altar as a burnt offering completely consumed but here he is saying we are going to go over here and worship and we will come back he doesn't know how it will happen but in faith he says that he will come back with Isaac at his side how how could he say this Abraham knew that Isaac's very existence was a fulfilled promise and he was convinced that if God had delivered on his promises before, he's going to do it again. He doesn't know the how, but he knows the who. And when we get to verses 7 through 8, it's, oh, it's a heartbreaker. It just yanks on your heartstrings. Isaac has no idea that he is on the verge of death. 
He recognizes that they're on their way to make sacrifice, but he breaks the silence of the text saying, my father, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb? Where is the lamb, father? This innocent question of Isaac underscores the weight of this heart-piercing scene. And Abraham's response, still full of faith, he says to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. What Abraham essentially says here is that God will provide what God requires. God will provide what God requires. What God demands, God supplies. And we'll trust him to do just that, my son. When they reach the place that God had told them about, the place called Moriah, many Old Testament scholars believe that this was exactly the site of Jerusalem and the site where the temple would be built. So years in advance before this site became the place where sacrifice was offered for the redemption of Israel, Abraham here is offering his sacrifice on the mountain. And here's what's interesting. Abraham, when he gets to the place, he begins the procedures for this ritual sacrifice. He's getting everything ready, and Isaac has seen this before, y'all. He has seen his dad build altars on many occasions. He knew that they were on their way to make an offering, but he sees fire, he sees the knife, he sees the wood, and there's no lamb. And then his father walks up to him, and he grabs his arms, and he begins to bind him. In, in, in the Jewish community, they call this text the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. I want you to think for a second. This is a, a teenager to a late teenager versus a man who is now 115 to 120 years old. Isaac could have run away. Isaac could have overpowered him. But what we have here is the image of a son who trusts his father. The image of a son who submits to his father, who, who, who believes in his father's good intentions and his father's goodness. Abraham is trusting God and Isaac is trusting his father. Now, as we take in this scene, we naturally think, what is going on here? Why in the world is this in the Bible? Why would God bring Father Abraham to such a place? Why would he make such a, a, a command of, of Father Abraham? Doesn't, doesn't this paint God to be heartless and cruel, even sadistic? Here's what we need to consider. The first thing we need to consider is that at the very beginning of our passage, we are told by the narrator that this was a test. It was a test, which would let you know immediately as an original reader that this was not going to follow through. It was a test. 
But not only this, in the architecture of time, in the structure of the scriptures, God has given us this story for a very profound purpose. God has given us this text because he wants this passage to lead us to the story of a greater father, a greater son, and a greater provision. That's where this story goes. This story is leading us. This entire scene is meant to give us spiritual, intellectual, and emotional access to the fatherly love of divine proportions. The love of Abraham for Isaac is only a faint glimmer of God the Father's love for his son. Abraham's joy in Isaac pales in comparison to God the Father's joy in his son. You can't imagine how special the son of God was to the father. The father had incredible delight in his son. And that love and delight stretches back into eternity past. The triune God always existed in the perfection of love, in the beauty of glory, not needing anyone or anything else complete in himself. And that's what makes the father's giving of his son all the more staggering. It takes a story of this nature to peer into the mystery of the father's love for his son. But even more, the mystery of the father's love for you because he was willing to give his son to bring you home. How much must God love you? How committed must he be to your flourishing? How reliable must you judge him in light of this decision, this costly decision that he made? You got to know that as the father contemplated the giving of his son, it must have almost been as if his great heart was imploding. We can't quite get there because there's a barrier of mystery because God is not like us. But he relates to us analogically by way of illustration just to give us a sense. If you can get a sense of the emotional space of Abraham, that can give you a sense of the depth of the cost the father paid for you. In this text, we see that there, there is no more costly sacrifice available. There was no other way. If there was any other way to bring us home, any other sacrifice that would have sufficed to bring us home, the Father would have offered it. But we are clear from the scriptures that there was no other way of salvation. And the New Testament tells us that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And so the Father gave. He gave his son for you, for the likes of you and me. Can you sense his heart? Can you sense his deep love? His justice required his son. And when you see this text through this lens, you begin to ask different questions. It makes you ask, what have you done, God? How could you do such a thing? What kind of God does this? In this text, we're told that God wanted to test Abraham, but God gives us this text because he wants us to test him. Test him and see if you can find a love like this 
Too often in our lives, we are found looking for love in all the wrong places, trying to find completion in some other this-worldly human relationship. And God is saying, I am your enough. I am your sufficiency. I am your soul-satisfying treasure. My love is enough for you. We struggle to believe the love of God. And I want us to be reminded of that good word of that old school theologian who once said, John Owen once said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. I'm going to say that again. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. God cannot give you a greater proof of his love than the giving of his son. Behold the love of God in this text. That's what it's all about. That's why the Father put Abraham through his paces because he was so determined to give you a sense of his love, that he would do a picture like this. The breadth, the length, the width, and the height of the love of God is beyond imagination in this text. And as you get a sense of what it costs Father Abraham to lay his beloved son on the altar, you're now beginning to get a sense of the cost to God the Father in laying his son on the altar. It was a sacrificial love, an eternal love, a superlative love, a boundless and immeasurable love. It's calling to you and I this text and saying, take heart. You are loved, people of God. This text shows us a father's love so that we can gain access to the father's love. Do you see that? It's giving us a sense of one father's love to bring us into the depths of the father's love. But we also see a son's redemption in this text, which brings us to our final point. In verses 9 through, nine through 10, we see that the, the pain is coursing through Abraham's heart as he binds his son. And he lays him on the altar, y'all. I want you to enter into this. Enter into it emotionally. Abraham takes a willing Isaac. He lays him on the altar, and he takes his flint knife. The image here is not a stabbing motion down like this. It was the same way that a lamb was slaughtered in the tabernacle or temple. It was his knife at the neck of his son near the artery. Now, picture Father Abraham looking into the face of this child he waited for for 25 years. And, and, and having the knife at his neck. And what Abraham sees is not just the loss of his one beloved son. He sees the loss of the entirety of the redemption of the world. Because the promise was through this boy on this altar. God's promise was to bless and redeem the world through this son. So he's not only contemplating the loss of his son, but the loss of the entire world. 
And before he makes the cut that would end his son's life, all of a sudden a voice cries out, Abraham, Abraham. And you can imagine through the the tear-stained face, he says, here I am. And the angel says, don't harm the boy. Now, check this out. Immediately, as soon as he hears the voice of the angel telling him not to harm the boy, his eyes move from the face of his son to a ram caught in the thicket. Now, hold up, we got to stop here, because just as the original audience, Israel, knew that, that the Lord deserved the firstborn, that all of the firstborn of God's people belonged to the Lord, they just as surely knew that the firstborn could be redeemed by a lamb. That's exactly what they saw happening in the Exodus. It was the firstborn who was redeemed by the lamb. And now the firstborn of Abraham, when he looks from his face and he sees the ram caught in the thicket, he sees the redemption of his firstborn son in the lamb. So you got to know from this text that Abraham not only sees the redemption of his firstborn son in the lamb, but he sees the redemption of the world in the lamb. And so you got to know that Abraham was grateful for the lamb. He praised God for the lamb. His fears were relieved by the lamb. His joy was restored by the lamb. And his hope was secured by the lamb. The substitutionary lamb did not appear out of luck or good fortune. The text is clear. The narrator takes great pains to let us know that this lamb was the provision of the Lord to redeem Isaac. When Isaac asked his father where the lamb for the sacrifice was, Abraham responded in faith saying, the Lord will provide. That was the question that was on the lips and on the minds of the original hearers of this text. We come to this text, and our question is, how could you do such a thing, God? What is going on with this text? The only question in the mind of the first audience would be, where's the lamb? Where is the lamb for Isaac's redemption? Where is the lamb that will free Isaac from this this sacrifice? Where is the lamb? Abraham says, the Lord will provide, and now his faith has become sight. Do you see that? His faith in the Lord. Remember what he said, we are going over here, and we are coming back. Where is the lamb? The Lord will provide for himself the lamb. That was his statement of faith. And now in the lamb that's caught in the thicket, his faith becomes sight. Do you know that your faith will become sight, believer? It may take a while. It may be 25 years of heartache and waiting, but your faith will become sight. We can only imagine Father Abraham's joy. It was as if he received his son back from the dead. But ultimately, Isaac's question, where is the lamb? would find a final answer on another mountain, Mount Calvary. 
On this mountain, the Lord provided a redemptive substitute for his children. On this mountain, the Lord provided the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Israel was supposed to see themselves in this text, not as Abraham, who makes a sacrificial offering in faith. Israel was supposed to see themselves as Isaac, the one for whom a substitute was offered, saving and redeeming their lives. That was the good news of this text for them, because Israel was called the firstborn son of the Lord in Exodus chapter 4, but it's not until we get to Calvary that we see the lamb given not just for Israel, but for Israel and the entire world. The Gentiles are grafted into God's story. Where is the lamb? He's descending from glory to take on human flesh. Where is the lamb? The scriptures answer, he's living a righteous life to become a perfect offering. Where is the lamb? He's praying in Gethsemane and sweating drops of blood under the weight of his pending death. Where is the lamb? He's suffering unjust condemnation in a kangaroo court. Where is the lamb? He's being flogged and scourged and crowned with thorns. Where is the lamb? He's carrying the old rugged cross of Calvary's mountain. Where is the lamb? He's crying out for our pardon from a cruciform altar. Where is the lamb? He's suffering under the wrath of God, suspended as the bridge between heaven and earth. There is no angel calling out for his release. There is no one to stay the hand of his executioners. But he doesn't try to run away. He is the son who trusts his father and submits to him. Because it was for this very purpose that he came. Jesus himself said, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we can hardly imagine the father's joy because not only did he receive his beloved son back, he received his beloved sons and daughters back in the raising of Jesus Christ. In the substitute offering, the Lord gets it all back. So now where is the lamb? He's ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Where is the lamb? He is seated on the throne Surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses and myriad angels singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now we can see in this Lamb, not just the redemption of Israel, but the redemption of the world and the fulfillment of God's promise because God's saving plan runs through Jesus. And now God's redeemed people are grateful for the lamb. We praise God for the lamb. Our fears are relieved by the lamb. Our joy is restored by the lamb. And our future hope is secured by the lamb. And one day we'll join the blessed course and say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever. It takes the image of a loving father, a beloved son, 
and a sacrificial substitute lamb in order to bring us into the heart of what the gospel is and why it's good news for us. This is how we get redemption, through the once-for-all sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So what do we do with this? I think this text shows us that our greatest problem in life is not that God's love for us is in question. Our greatest problem is that we have not made this love the very center of our being. We have doubted his love. We struggle to believe his love, especially when the circumstances of our lives seem to be pointing toward the idea that he doesn't love us, that he doesn't care, that he's not present, that he's not aware of what's going on with us. This text should silence those lies in your head. This is the kind of love that he has for his people. And if he would love us this deeply, there is nothing that can dislodge you from that love. Our problem is that we don't live out of that love as our essential way of being in the world. But this, listen, this love is the truth from above that we must continually pull down into our ordinary lives. We have to, it, it's, like a, it's like a balloon with helium in it. It always wants to float away the love of God. We have to keep pulling it down into the ordinariness of life, the mundane of life. This is the truth. Whether you're happy or sad, Christian, you are loved. Whether you're working or resting, you are loved. Whether you're succeeding or failing, you are loved. And we must celebrate this truth to work it into our hearts. Sin begins in the doubt of God's love. But restoration and renewal begin in the trust of God's love. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? Do you want to grow in faith? Do you want to mature in your relationships? You must grow in the love of God. You must sink deeper roots in the love of God. You must identify, just like the Apostle John, as one whom Jesus has loved. That's the identity. And this means that we must make a daily practice of unmasking the lies that the world tells us about ourselves. That's, that's part of the work. The application is to begin to sort out what lies are you believing about yourself right now? Someone in here is struggling to believe in their own personal worth. Someone in here is struggling to believe that God is up to good in their lives. Someone in here is struggling to believe that they are the glorious image bearer of God. This text is meant to orient us in, at the level of our identity. And if we are oriented to the love of God in our identity, we will see that work into our activity. The way we've been loved ought to make us the most fearless people on the planet. Fearless in our engagement with neighbors, fearlessly generous, fearlessly patient in the unknown, fearlessly rested amidst the busyness and panic of our age. I pray that in the culture of our church, we will prize the sacrifice of God the Father and God the Son for us. That we will esteem the transforming work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to what God has done for us in the giving of his son, and that we would experience the relief and the delight, everything going forward, 
should be marked by trust and faith and confidence. Because when we look back at what God has done, he has given us every reason to continue on this journey of faith in full confidence that he will do what he said he will do, and he is reliable. Ultimately, the Lord says to Abraham, now I know, because you did not hold back your son, now I know that you're mine. But on this side of the cross, we can say to the Lord, now we know, because you didn't hold back your son, that you are ours. Amen. Let's pray this into our souls and into our communal dynamics. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.